Uh, well, good morning again, church. It's a privilege and a pleasure to be up here. Uh, if you join me today in opening your Bibles to the book of Lamentations, the book of Lamentations, and we'll be in chapter one today. Uh, I know it's a book we don't normally preach out of, so I'll, I'll give you guys a, a few seconds to flip there. The book of Lamentations, and we'll be in uh, Lamentations chapter 1, verses 1 uh, through 22, and I believe if you're using the Black Pew Bible, that's page 685. I'll go ahead and I'll, I'll read that text for us. Lamentations chapter 1. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow she has become. She who was great among the nations. She who was a princess among the provinces has become a slave. She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. Judah has gone into exile because of affliction and hard servitude. She dwells now among the nations, but finds no resting place. Her pursuers have all overtaken her in the midst of her distress. The roads to Zion mourn, for none come to the festival. All her gates are desolate. Her priests groan, her virgins have been afflicted, and she herself suffers bitterly. Her foes have become the head, her enemies prosper, because the Lord has afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. Her children have gone away, captives before the foe. From the daughter of Zion, all her majesty has departed. Her princes have become like deer that find no pasture. They fled without strength before the pursuer. Jerusalem remembers in the days of her affliction and wandering and all the precious things that were hers from days of old. When her people fell into the hand of the foe and there was none to help her, her foes gloated over her. They mocked at her downfall. Jerusalem sinned grievously, therefore she became filthy. All who honored her despise her, for they have seen her nakedness. She herself groans and turns her face away. Her uncleanness was in her skirts. She took no thought of her future, therefore her fall is terrible. She has no comforter. O Lord, behold my affliction, for the enemy has triumphed. The, nation, the enemy has stretched out his hands over all precious things, for she has seen the nations enter her sanctuary, those whom you forbade to enter your congregation. All her people groan as they search for bread. They made their treasures for food to revive their strength. Look, O Lord, and see, for I am despised. Is it nothing to you, all who pass by? Look and see if there is any sorrow like my sorrow, from which, from which was brought upon me, which the Lord inflicted on the day of his fierce anger. From on high he sent fire, into my bones he made it descend. He spread a net for my feet, he turned me back. He has left me stunned, faint all the day long. My tra transgressions were bound into a yoke. By his hand they were fastened together. They were set upon my neck. He caused my strength to fail. The Lord gave me into the hands of those whom I cannot withstand. The Lord rejected all my mighty men in my midst. He summoned an assembly against me to crush my young men. The Lord has trodden as in a winepress the virgin daughter of Judah. For these things I weep. My eyes flow with tears, for a comforter is far from me. None to revive my spirit. My children are desolate, for the enemy has prevailed. Zion stretches out her hands, but there is none to comfort her. The Lord has commanded against Jacob that his neighbors should be his foes. Jerusalem has become a filthy thing among them. 
The Lord is in the right, for I have rebelled against his word. But hear all you peoples and see my suffering. My young woman and my young men have gone into captivity. I called to my lovers, but they deceived me. My priests and elders perished in the city while they sought food to revive their strength. Look, O Lord, for I am in distress. My stomach churns. My heart is wrung within me because I have been very rebellious. In the street the the sword breathes. In the house it is like death. They heard my groaning, yet there is none to comfort me. All my enemies have heard of my trouble. They are glad that you have done it. You have brought the day you announced. Now let them be as I am. Let all their evil doing come before you and deal with them as you have dealt with me because of all my transgressions. For my groans are many, and my heart is faint. This is the word of God. Well, I think it is a simple fact that is true for each one of us. Our lives begin and end with crying. As a baby, our first breath in this world was probably accompanied with loud whines as we frantically adjusted to life outside our mother's belly. And then comes the day we breathe our last breath. And we are lowered into that grave with our friends and our loved ones, weeping over the life we have left behind. From womb to tomb, our lives are bookended with tears. But not only on the edges, even through the in-between. In life, we will go through our own personal failures. We will suffer through our own losses of loved ones. We will experience disease and we will witness tragedies like a marriage falling apart. Sorrow, sadness, and lament are completely woven in to the fabric of our lives. And not just our personal experiences, just take a look at the last two and a half years of our world. It was about that time that our normal lives seemingly came to a screeching halt as a pandemic waged on and claimed the lives of over six million people. And as we have slowly begun to reclaim our regular routines again, it seems like we have only transitioned now to witnessing a war breakout. And even in just this past season, we have had to deal again with multiple senseless shootings that have claimed innocent lives. The sad reality is we do not have to go too far or live too long to just be brought to our knees with grief in our lives. It's a natural reality from the fact that we live in a broken world. And I think it's only natural during these times of sorrow, to wonder, where is God? Where is God? And we cry out. We ask him to put an end to the suffering. We beg him to intervene. And yet it seems like God is silent. Surely God must do something about what we are witnessing or what we have experienced. And after some time, after prayer, over prayer, we realize we have nowhere else to turn to but simply to mourn. To accept our circumstances and simply grieve and weep from the deepest springs of our hearts. Or in other words, we lament. And as I've walked through and observed and struggled to digest some of our world's circumstances for myself, uh, the one book that I found myself turning to over and over again is this book, the Book of Lamentations. And this book is a raw, heartfelt cry of sorrow out to God when circumstances seem to offer no hope. The author is crying out from one of the most depressing places ever in Israel's history, and he's pleading with God constantly to please take notice of our pain. 
And throughout this book, though nothing about the circumstances will ever change, the author eventually sees hope in God's mercy. And even more interesting about this book is that in each one of its verses, even as all its cries to God, is that the one voice that is still silent here is the voice of God. But we will see that while God never responds personally, God is still very much present, and he still very much cares. What this book teaches us is that when our laments are rooted in faith and informed by what we believe, we will eventually see that mercy still surrounds us and hope can be found in the Lord. Lamenting properly will give us eventually not only peace, but lead to praise to God. And so I'm excited. I'm excited to dive into Lamentations with you guys. And Lord willing, I'm hoping to do five sermons out of this, one sermon addressing each individual chapter. And to set you some background for this entire book, uh, the book of Lamentations was likely written somewhere between 583 to 586 B.C., uh, likely after the destruction of Jerusalem from the Babylonians. And many believe the author of this book to be the prophet Jeremiah uh, from po- passages such, like, such as uh, 2 Chronicles chapter 35 and 36. And uh, from my own studies, I, I seem to fall in favor of this interpretation as well. After all, Jeremiah is nicknamed by many the weeping prophet. And as Jeremiah is left behind to witness this Babylonian exile, this book, the book of Lamentations, is a document of his sorrowful reflection over the state of Jerusalem. Each chapter in this book represents an individual poem explaining the judgment Jerusalem is going through because of her sin. And what's unique about Jeremiah's writing style is that actually chapters 1 through 4 in this book are acrostic poems with each verse starting with the subsequent letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And so the Hebrew language is uh, 22 letters, uh, the first letter being Aleph and the last one being Tau. And if you look through the original Hebrew text, that's actually how these stanzas break up. So verse 1 starts with Aleph, the second one Beth, the third one Gimel, and so on. The equivalent in English would be if you wrote a 26-verse poem, the first verse starting with A, the second B, the third C, and so on, until you hit Z. And these acrostics had a purpose in the Hebrew language. These acrostics were used to say in a poetic fashion that the author is covering the totality of the entire subject being discussed. And so through each acrostic poem, Jeremiah evolves through the stages of his lament. And along the way, as he does so, Jeremiah communicates the complete totality of the emotions he is enduring. And this first poem in chapter 1 is sort of an introductory survey uh, to the scene in Jerusalem. And so as this book opens in chapter 1, we see that the author is bemoaning and lamenting over why Jerusalem is even in this state to begin with. As I've said before, this book teaches us on how to relate to God when our circumstances seem to offer no hope. And chapter 1 gives us an explanation for those circumstances. Or in other words, Jeremiah presents us with the cause for his laments. And these causes, I believe, point to truths that are applicable to us even today as we think about what it means to lament as a Christian. And so as we walk through our text today, as we walk through Lamentations chapter 1, I want us to see two truths to consider in our laments. Two truths to consider in our laments. 
And the first truth is to recognize that sin has consequences. Sin has consequences. And we see that in verses 1 through 11. In these first 11 verses, the author speaks in the third person on behalf of the city of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem here is portrayed as a completely broken woman in total distress over her circumstances. We have mentioned uh, that this book was written sometime around the destruction of Jerusalem. But to better understand everything that led up to that destruction, I think it's helpful to do just a brief summary of the history of Israel. From the book of Genesis, Israel was always chosen to be God's people. But they hardly lived up to that standard. As history goes on, Israel constantly falls into cycles of sin, and they refuse to repent from it. And their sins eventually lead to disunity, and they fracture the entire nation. So after the reigns of King David and King Solomon, the nation of Israel is now divided into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom, still called Israel, and the southern kingdom, now called Judah. And Israel gets conquered by Assyria in 722 BC. But Assyria eventually falls, and now a new foreign power comes onto the scene. It's Babylon, and Babylon is the new bully to fear. And the nation of Judah, the southern kingdom, becomes prideful, and they think, well, we should make a name for ourselves. And so they try to push back against Babylon, and they try to get them out of the picture, even though the reality is they do not actually stand a chance. So what happens is that eventually Judah just becomes annoying enough to Babylon that King Nebuchadnezzar decides, well, you know what, I'm just, I'm just going to annihilate Judah. So in 587 BC, the Babylonians break through Judah and their capital, Jerusalem. They break into the city. Judah's army is captured, and they begin wreaking havoc. Systematically, palaces and houses are burnt. And then finally, the Babylonians reach the temple, the dwelling place of Yahweh, the Holy of Holies, the building that took Solomon 400 years to build. And they completely tear it apart. Jerusalem, once called the joy of all the earth, is now completely decimated. So what's left in Judah is the very, very few of the unlucky survivors, including Jeremiah. And what we see here is that this is widespread disaster, death, destruction, and depression. And this is a backdrop for Lamentations. And the author shows us just how low a place Jerusalem has been brought to in their exile. Their centuries of rebellion and sin are now all catching up to them. And so Jeremiah opens by describing how the consequences of sin have completely ravaged the city. And so I want to take a survey of just the entire scene that is brought before us in these first 11 verses. And specifically what we will see is that the suffering Jerusalem is going through consists of reversal, emptiness, and shame. Reversal, emptiness, and shame. And we'll try to go through all three of these themes sequentially. First reversal in verses 1 and 2. Verse 1 reads, How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow she has become, she who was great among the nations. Jerusalem was once a prosperous city, a vibrant, uh, really a hub for other nearby businessmen and traders. But now, that's all gone. 
They once stood out amongst all the nations as God's chosen people, the recipients of God's blessings. But now, she's called a widow. And in Old Testament context, oftentimes, uh, God's covenant relationship with his chosen people is described as that of a marriage. And so being called a widow symbolizes how God has now left her and turned her over to her sins. At the end of verse 2, the reversal continues. It reads, All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. A nation that once had many allies now has no one to turn to. Instead, they have become her rivals. In its historical context, this is likely the nations of Egypt and Edom, nations that instead of helping out, just stood by, and they just watched Jerusalem fall and just kind of laughed at them. So not only has their status before God dropped, their status among its neighbors has dropped as well. Everything that Jerusalem could once take pride in has been completely upended. Everything that they used to rely on strength and confidence has been now taken away from them completely, totally turned around. This is the reversal their sins have brought onto them. Whatever they once were, whatever they once had, has been flipped backwards 180 degrees. But not only has their sin brought reversal, it has also brought emptiness. It's brought emptiness, and we see that in verses 3 through 6. Verse 3, Judah has gone into hard afflictions, and, and the author writes, she dwells now among the nations, but finds no resting place. And what we see in parallel passages to the exile, such as 2 Kings chapter 25 or Jeremiah 52, is that when the Babylonians invaded, the citizens got scared. They fled. They tried to run to other nations, only for those nations to just enslave them and kill them. And that's what verse 3 is referring to. Then the following verse, verse 4, now personifies this emptiness when it says, even the roads cry out. Jerusalem was once a busy place of worship. The roads were all full of people because they led to the temple where people could go and sacrifice and worship the living God. But now the roads mourn because they are empty. It is as if these roads have no purpose anymore because no one comes here to seek out the Lord. And then verse 5 states, Her children have gone away captives before the foe. I imagine that Jerusalem in its heyday was also probably a place filled with fields of children playing, parents trying to uh, corral their kids from climbing trees after they've wrapped up whatever feast or festival they've finished celebrating. But now, those children do not play anymore. Instead, they have been snatched out of their homes and forced in to harsh labor. The city is now completely abandoned. And in a sense, I think we too can relate in a bit a bit to what this emptiness was like back in the year 2020. When the pandemic broke out, we were all told to stay at home as much as possible. Do your best to not go out. And as COVID-19 waged on slowly, we saw our favorite cafes and restaurants shut down. Parks were sectioned off completely with caution tape to keep them from being used. And our Google Maps became completely green because there was no such thing as rush hour traffic anymore. Do not get me wrong, I understand that there was a purpose to these shutdowns, but if you were anything like me during those rare times where you are able to go out, there is a sense of gloom that overcomes you as you look out and you see that emptiness. 
because you miss what things used to be and you wonder if they will ever go back to the way they were. And I think that it is this gloom, but compounded even more for Jeremiah. Because what Jeremiah sees is far more severe than a pandemic. This is national eviction and deportation. Jeremiah knows he is blessed if things even come back slightly to what they were within his lifetime. Every aspect of their population has now been decimated. All its once proud citizens are now considered cowards or they're kidnapped or they're killed. The city has been completely drained of all its life and along with that, all of its purpose. That's the emptiness their sin brings. And thirdly, now we will see the shame their sin brings. The shame their sin brings. In verse 8, the author bluntly and emphatically states that Jerusalem has sinned grievously. And because of that sin, everyone has seen her nakedness. From the Garden of Eden, the symbol of nakedness has always been tied to shame over sin. Prior to the fall, Adam and Eve had no need for covering or clothes because they had no sin. But after they sinned, they were keenly aware that their guilt and shame was now exposed in their nakedness, and they try to cover themselves up. And it's this same type of shame over sin that I think Jeremiah is pointing to. The idea of your sins being laid bare for everyone to ridicule. Then there's shame that also comes through religious desecration. Verse 10 reads, The nations enter her sanctuary. And this is a reference to, a, to the temple in Jerusalem, a symbol of purity, but now ransacked and defiled by Gentile nations. The sign that made Jerusalem stand out in the world, that made Jerusalem the holy city of God, is now completely tarnished. And finally, there's shame in that they have lost their basic human dignities. They have lost their basic human dignities. In verse 11, in addition to its spiritual affliction, now we see there is physical affliction also. Besides all the destruction the Babylonians brought to Judah, they also drained their food supplies dry. So if you were not killed by them in their raids, you likely starved to death. That's why Jeremiah writes in that verse that they groan for bread. Completely desperate, they have to trade their most valued possessions just to get by on another meal. The Babylonians are saying to them, if you have not already suffered enough or witnessed enough, now we are going to make you beg to survive. To go through one of these afflictions I've just mentioned is already enough shame. But to go through all of these afflictions simultaneously is something else. Judah, against its will, is completely stripped bare physically and spiritually to its most vulnerable state, simply for everyone to scorn them. These first 11 verses display suffering in its most raw form. And why is this suffering happening? Well, as I I have hinted to earlier, verse 5, because of the multitude of transgressions, or again echoed in verse 8, because Jerusalem sinned grievously. These are the real consequences of Judah's sins. As we've already begun to see and will continue to see in Lamentations, the suffering here was brought on because of their own sins. It was done because of their persistent rebellion, idolatry, and disobedience against the Lord. And what these verses teach is that sin will bring devastating consequences to those who remain devoted to it. Sin will bring devastating consequences to those who remain devoted to it. These images of reversal, emptiness, and shame are simply examples of what will happen to you if you refuse to deal with your sin. 
It will bring ruin to your life, your family, your friends, your church, and your community. Perhaps you are are short-tempered and quick to anger. You show brash speech and harsh confrontations to even the slightest faults you see. And as you let it progress, it begins to take a toll on your health as you find yourself constantly prone to stress and anxiety. Your doctor warns you that you're risking years on your life if you do not manage it well. In addition, you look around and all your loved ones bear baggage and scars from the distress that you have caused them. Perhaps you are prone to lying. and You lie about one thing for your gain, but that leads to other lies to cover up your original one. And gradually now, you've built an entire storyline that is based on deception. But inevitably, one day, the truth comes and brings everything down. Your reputation is eroded, people are hurt, and now you've lost magnitudes more than you originally gained. Perhaps you are viewing pornography and you are doing nothing to stop it. It begins to warp your affection. Your conscience becomes desensitized. You begin to tolerate more and more immorality. It becomes an addiction where you begin to neglect your other daily tasks. You try to cover it up, but it gets exposed. And your spouse, children, and your small group now all feel betrayed. And now you have a long road again to rebuild trust with them. Whatever sin it may be, you continue in it. You cherish it. And it will wreak havoc into every corner of your life and the lives of those around you. It has been said before that sin promises like a God but makes you pay like a devil. Sin promises like a God but makes you pay like a devil. And Lamentations chapter 1 takes us deep into the reality of what that payment looks like. And I think it is the Holy Spirit's hope that we would see that in these verses and take stock for our own future, showing that this is where sin leads. If you follow its course to the end, this is where sin will take you. Every individual will give an account of their lives for the Lord, and those who persist in their sin will find their consequences eternally devastating. That's the first truth to recognize is to recognize the consequences of sin. The second truth is to recognize that we live in a world ruled by a righteous judge. We live in a world ruled by a righteous judge, and we see that in verses 12 through 22. Now the speaker switches from the third person to the first person, as if now Jerusalem is speaking on behalf of herself. And specifically, she recognizes that her consequences are not only, from sin, are not only brought about by sin, but they are also being brought directly by God. And from verses 13 through 15, uh, the poet uses a series of metaphors to describe how this judgment looks specifically. The first metaphor we see, verse 13, is fire. The author writes, From on high, God sent fire, and into my bones he made it descend. And fire is a common symbol used throughout the Bible for judgment. It's a symbol used to describe judgments such as Sodom and Gomorrah or the day of the Lord. And these are the kinds of parallels the author is trying to compare to here. A kind of purging and all-consuming judgment that has been brought on Judah for its sins. Verse 14, God's judgment is now described as a yoke fastened on the neck. And in that time, yokes were often used for fugitives and criminals and placed over their neck to render them defenseless and useless. And so here, Jeremiah writes that God's judgment has left Judah unable to defend themselves, wide open for attack. Then in verse 15, the image of a wine press is used. We've talked a lot about the Babylonian invasion, and the one thing you're wondering about is probably, where was the army to protect Judah in all of this? Surely they had men at the ready. 
Well, verse 15 has our answer. They were completely crushed, trodden in a wine press. As one commentator puts it graphically, the wine was the blood squeezed out of the body, conceived of as grapes. God's judgment in these metaphors is swift, powerful, and complete. But notice, even as dark and overwhelming as this divine judgment has been, as graphic as these images may be, the author never actually once accuses God. The author never once curses God. And it's because Jeremiah knows God is acting fully within his bounds as judge. And we see that come out now in verse 18. Verse 18, the Lord is in the right, for I have rebelled against his word. But hear all you peoples and see my suffering. My young woman and my young men have gone into captivity. Despite how depressing, how painful, how bleak an image of judgment we see, the citizens do not charge God with injustice. They do not make light of their sin. The author knows that this judgment is fully deserved because Yahweh is righteous. And this is the foundational pillar of the Old Testament faith, that God must act righteously when his covenant and his laws are not upheld. The Mosaic law was given to be a blessing and meant to enable God's people to fellowship with him. And so God is also acting justly when he inflicts penalties for breaking his law. But in addition, God's righteous judgment is also not limited. It was also something that was not simply reserved for the nation of Judah. To be righteous means that judgment applies equally to all peoples and to all sins. There is no impartiality to who receives it. And that also will include the sins of Babylon. Despite being used as a means of God's judgment, the Babylonians are still accountable for their inhumane treatment of Judah's citizens. And Jeremiah knows that, which is why he ends this poem asking God to deal justly with the Babylonians as well. The latter part of verse 21 through verse 22 read, All my enemies have heard of my trouble. They are glad that you have done it. You have brought the day you announced. Now let them be as I am. Let all their evil doing come before you and deal with them as you have dealt with me because of all my transgressions. For my groans are many and my heart is faint. Just as Yahweh is a judge who must deal with Judah's sins, we see here that the author has faith that Yahweh will deal with Babylon's sins in just the same way. They deserve the same fate that has been poured out now on Jerusalem. Just as Jerusalem has been brought low, emptied, and shamed, so too will Babylon one day. Earlier we talked about how we must recognize the consequences of our sin, but the flip side of that coin is to also recognize that we have a righteous judge. It's one thing to recognize the damage your sins have brought about. It's another thing to understand who is the one who will ultimately reckon with your sins. And each one of us was made in the image of God with God's moral law in our hearts. And so when we sin, we mar the design God made us for. And as an offense against God, he in his very own nature must deal with that sin appropriately as a judge. Especially in our day, Judges seem to always come under public scrutiny and criticism. If they give sentences too harsh, they are considered cold. If they give sentences too light, they are considered disinterested. And they seem to just move case by case by banging the gavel and just moving on. But God is not a judge like that. God is a judge who delights in righteousness and cannot stand sin. And so he is acting properly in all his judgments. And as the only true searcher of hearts... Nothing can escape God, and so he knows and judges everyone. 
as they truly are. So we do not take the circumstances around us and say, God, how dare you inflict this upon me? We do not look at the results brought about by sin and say, what I'm suffering, the judgment I'm enduring, is because God is not actually as loving as he says he is. The judgments of our sins are a necessary reaction from God to objective moral evil. And so when we suffer the consequences of our sins, it is not because God is acting cruelly, but that as creator and Lord of the world, he cannot leave himself without witness to his character. It is at the very nature of God to act true to each one of his attributes. And one of those attributes is that God is righteous, and that righteousness must confront the reality of sin. In these two truths, we see the pillars or the causes of Jeremiah's laments. The nation's sins have now been met with the righteous judgment of God, and they have to bear the consequences for it. His people are suffering, yes, but they have brought this fate on for themselves. Earlier I referred to how Hebrew acrostic poems represent a sense of completeness. And in chapter 1, Jeremiah demonstrates to his readers that brokenness has completely overtaken Judah. Brokenness has overtaken them from A to Z. And this is why he feels hopeless in his circumstances. And as devastating as the scene is, I think Judah is just one of the many examples throughout the history of our world today that illustrate the true depths of depravity. In a lot of ways, our world today is not different from Judah in its pursuit of sin and its refusal to deal with it. And this is why I believe this chapter and ultimately the entire book of Lamentations has been kept in our Bibles so that we can understand how to lament over the full scale of brokenness we see in our world. And while in this specific context, Jeremiah talks about how suffering is a direct result of sin, I believe this chapter also helps us understand how we lament really over any kind of suffering, even when it may not be directly the cause of our own sins. Because it is these two truths, the righteous judgment of God and the consequences of sin, that also explain the reasons for why we live in such a fallen world. Not just in Lamentations, these two themes are pervasive from Old to New Testament. In Genesis 3, when Adam first sins, God curses the world. And it's because of God's holiness and the fact that there must be a necessary reaction to sin, a consequence of sin, is that a curse has now been brought. And the Apostle Paul picks up this idea of the curse in the book of Romans. And now he puts more specificity to it. He says that in chapter 5, through Adam's sin, death has now entered into this world. And so it is because of the curse of sin that evil, pain, and suffering are now present realities for all of humanity. Then over a few chapters in chapter 8, Paul further describes now that this curse has led creation to now be subjected to futility. And now creation yearns for a day where it will be set free. But until then, in Romans 8, Paul writes, Now all creation groans together. Or to put it another way, all creation laments. All creation laments because we feel the weight of the consequences of sin and we long for a day where creation will be made right with God again. So whether it be our own sins, the sins of others, disease, death, or violence in the world, similar to Jeremiah, we begin our laments by recognizing the presence of sin in this world and its destructive effects. Lament first recognizes that all tragedies are somehow traced in the curse of sin and longs for the righteousness of God. We relate to God in our grief by first accepting the cause for all afflictions 
the utter evil of sin. But thankfully, there is still a way we can find hope in our laments. Sin is not the final say. And even as bleak as this first chapter may seem, even here, Jeremiah gives us a glimpse to what the solution is. Let's go back to verses 21 and 22. And I want to point out a very unique tension I see unfolding here. Notice here that when the author asks for the judgment of the Babylonians, he makes no appeal to the nation's innocence. He does not ask for it on behalf of their own merit because they have none. He asks and he appeals to God's justice and God's justice alone. He lays his woes at the the feet of the nation's sins, and yet he continues to reach out to God who can deliver them from their present and horrible distress. And this is a tension that I'm referring to, that the very judge of Judah's own sins is also the same person they can appeal to for their deliverer. Usually it does not make sense to ask your punisher to be also your deliverer, but in this case, it is happening. And how can that be? How can a God who is powerful in judgment also be our deliverer? The only places these two realities come together is in the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, comes and he willingly takes a yoke of our sins on his own neck. He is the one willing to be trodden on that cross, bearing the full weight of judgment on our behalf. He took the reversal from prince of peace to now a lowly criminal. And as he hung there, naked on the cross, propped up for everyone to scorn and mock him, he took the shame of our own sins so that we may have none. And God pours out his righteous judgment on his own son, Jesus Christ, so that we would not have to bear eternal suffering for our sins on that final day. That is why Jesus died, and that is why Jesus rose again. Our very God, who is a righteous and powerful judge, can also be our deliverer if we come to him now through faith in Jesus Christ. As J.I. Packer puts it for us, as judge he is the law, but as savior he is the gospel. Run from him now, and you will meet him as judge, then and without hope. But seek him now, and you will find him. The only way the consequences of sin and the righteous judgment of God can be resolved in perfect harmony is through the person of Jesus Christ. Yes, our sufferings can run very deep, deep to the point of death, but that does not mean God cannot use it for good. Yes, lamenting is a very real and sorrowful reality ingrained into our lives, but that does not mean our laments have no purpose. Beginning our laments on these two truths that we have discussed today, the consequences of sin and the righteous judgment of God ultimately puts us on the path to finding Jesus Christ as your solution. And as you walk through the book of Lamentations, you will see that though it may not happen in his lifetime, Jeremiah knows a Messiah is coming. And what you will see is that the deeper his sorrows go, the greater he learns to long for this Messiah. As broken as our world may be, God can still use our laments to point us back to a Savior who can redeem it. And it is in Christ and Christ alone that all our sufferings will find hope. Christ is the one who will come one day and wipe away every tear. Christ will come and he will deliver us from even the darkest judgments of our own sins. And Christ will come and usher in a world one day where sickness, shooting, and calamities will never again threaten the harmony of our lives. It is because of the work on the cross that we, like Jeremiah, can cry out and say, Look, O Lord, and see, and trust that, yes, God does indeed see. After all, was it not Jesus himself who preached 
Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Lament ultimately tunes our heart to finding the grace of God. Let's pray. Father, we weep over the brokenness in our world. We know that sin has brought pain and suffering into our lives, and we know that we have fallen far too short of your glory. But in your wisdom and love, you have given us a Savior who has endured suffering to the utmost on our behalf. His blood can wash and redeem all things. And so we ask that as we mourn over the brokenness of the world, that we would see the reality of sin behind it. We ask that as we lament, our laments would drive us towards an appreciation of your righteousness. And we ask that through our crying out to you, you would show us Christ all the more clearly. It is in your Son's name we pray. Amen. Well, church, God's word is living and active, isn't it? It speaks to us in times of joy, and it speaks 